can be seated. Today's going to be our third and final sermon on the Lord's Prayer. The first week we looked at the address, the invocation, the first bit, uh, our Father who art in heaven, we saw to whom we pray, that we pray together in this family into which we've been adopted as the beloved children of our God, our Father who resides in heaven above, reigning over all things. This is the one to whom we pray, and this is the one to whom the next six petitions are directed. The first three of those we looked at last week, we call them the divine petitions because they're all about God. Your name, your kingdom, your will, we pray. And the first thing prayer does is it gets us in on what God is doing. It involves us in God's worship and will and kingdom and invites us to surrender and give our allegiance and will then to God. This week we look at the last three petitions and we notice the pronouns change from your to us. We still pray together in the plural. We're never rugged individuals in our faith, but we discover that prayer doesn't just involve us in what God is doing. Prayer also invites God into all that we need to live for God's glory. Give us, forgive us, rescue us, we pray. Prayer involves us in what God's doing, but prayer also involves God in all the details of our lives. And so as we turn to hear Jesus teach us again to pray, let's pray that it would be God speaking and not just me. Let's pray together. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come and shine upon us, we pray. Speak, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words like the Gentiles do. They think that because of their many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will might be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we've wronged you, just as we also forgive those who've wronged us. Don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive you, but if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Prayer involves us in what God is doing, but prayer also involves God in all the aspects of our lives, present, past, and future. Present, past, and future. Prayer involves God in the details of our lives first in the present. And we're taught first here to pray, give us the bread we need for today. Today, present. 
And we learn in praying this that God gets involved in our daily lives in the physical needs before God dives any deeper in. That God cares about something so simple as bread. There's a danger for Christians sometimes to become more spiritual than God is. But God cares first about the physical needs. There's a reason Christian missions often, and when they're doing their best work, reach out to meet the physical needs of the people that they're ministering with and to. God cares about something as simple as the bread we need for today. And Christians have seen this then as permission to pray for the other physical needs that we have, for food and clothing and shelter and relationships. All that we need, God prays us to ask, give us the bread we need for today. And as we learn to pray for all these things, we learn something else about ourselves. We learn that we're people who need. This is very important. We are creatures with limits who need When we pray, give us the bread we need for today, we recognize that we need bread today and that we need someone to provide it for us, which is something we might easily forget otherwise in this world. When we live in a place of such overabundance and excess and consumption, we forget that we have needs. We lose sight that we need because it seems like we can pretty well provide for everything on our own, and what we don't have, we can just run out and buy or order on Amazon and have in two days or less. I doubt any of us here have actually had to pray, give us the bread we need for today, in the desperation of wondering if that bread would come. We make it through our lives without realizing we're people who need. And what's worse, we come to see needs as weaknesses, That to need something from someone else, to be dependent on another, is about the worst thing that we can possibly imagine. We don't need anything. We can do it ourselves. We'll grit our teeth and bear it. We'll dig a little deeper. We'll try a little harder. We'll pull ourselves up. We don't need anything from anyone else. That kind of vulnerability is just going to leave us hurt and weak. But praying this prayer invites us to realize We are people who need. Having limits, after all, doesn't limit us from being fully human. Limits only limit us from being God, which we're never meant to be in the first place. And so embracing our need, our dependence and vulnerability upon God and others becomes the first step in the good news, in the gospel of Jesus. We need We are fragile, vulnerable, and dependent, and that's the way God made it, and that's the way God wants it. Because if we didn't need, we would never turn outside of ourselves. We learn that we're people who need. But something else happens as we pray for daily bread. We start to think about a tricky thing called enough. Again, we pray this in the midst of great excess, overabundance, and consumption. We are not likely wondering where the meals today will come from. We're more likely to be thinking about dieting because we have too much than not enough. In this culture, what is the bread we need for today? What is enough? Well, there's a story in Scripture to help us think about it. It's the story of manna in the wilderness. It's Exodus 16. 
The people of God are rescued from the evil one, Pharaoh, in Egypt. They're brought through a baptism in the Red Sea and out into the desert. And they realize food's a little hard to come by in the desert. And they start to look back and think slavery wasn't so bad. At least we knew where each meal was going to come from each day. And they start thinking about turning back. And Moses cries out to God and God answers with some strange sticky stuff on the ground the next morning. And the murmuring comes up in camp. What is it? What is it? What is it? And that becomes its name. Manna means, what is it? It's the bread we need for today. Daily bread coming down from heaven, gathering on the ground for the people each day, except the Sabbath. And they were instructed to go out each morning and gather enough for that day. But of course, humans being humans, some gathered and hoarded enough for today and tomorrow and the next day to make sure they'd have plenty to fill their bellies all week. And when they woke up the next morning, everything extra was rotten and full of worms and disgusting. They were invited each day to gather just enough for that day and to trust that God would provide then and the next day and the next day for what ended up being 40 years in the wilderness. Enough. In a world of such rampant consumption and consumerism, we've lost touch with enough. Learning to pray, give us the bread we need for today, invites us to think about all the bread we hoard for tomorrow because we don't trust. Of all that we don't need, of all that we think we need but really just want, and of all we have that could be meeting others' needs. After all, we still pray in the plural, right? Give us the bread we need for today, not give me the bread I need, not give my family the bread we need. Give us the bread we need for today. And so while we pray this prayer, knowing where today's food will come from, we pray with those who don't know, which led St. Basil of Caesarea, Basil the Great, to preach in the fourth century on the Lord's Prayer these words, the bread that's spoiling in your house belongs to the hungry. The shoes that are mildewing under your bed belong to those who have none. The clothes stored away in your trunk belong to those who are naked. And the money that depreciates in your treasury belongs to the poor. Good words. Prayer involves God in our lives, in meeting the need we have in the present. Give us the bread we need for today. But, Prayer, we find, also involves God in the needs of our lives in the past. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who've wronged us. If the first petition taught us that we're people who need, that we're vulnerable, that we have limits, this one teaches us that we're sinners, that we're those who have debts that will need to be paid. In our tradition, we often pray debts and debtors. Other traditions say trespasses and trespass against us, sin and sinned against us. The common English Bible I read the prayer out of says, uh, for the ways we've wronged you as we forgive those who've wronged us. But the Greek has a sense of something that's owed to another. That's how we get debts. And the rabbis in the first century talked about sin this way often. That every sin committed, every wrong done, every time we work against God's will for our lives and the world, for human flourishing according to God's design, 
a debt is incurred. And as those debts pile up, a wall is built between us and God that we cannot climb over or cross through. The truth is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As John says it in John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us carry around a pile of debt that we cannot pay off. And one day those debts will be called in and will be found bankrupt. As we pray this prayer daily, we learn that there are debts, that there are wrongs, that our past is piled full of them. We learn that we're sinners. But the really interesting thing is that Jesus and this prayer do not hone in on that. Jesus doesn't tell us to make sure we wallow enough in our sin, that we catalog it properly. Jesus tells us to ask for forgiveness. Because what we find in Jesus is not a teetotaler, but overflowing grace. Grace that we didn't earn, that we can't repay, that we cannot exhaust. And one of the qualities of that grace is the way that it overflows, that it cascades, that it spills over, so that when we experience that grace, it fills us up to overflowing so that we can say, forgive us for the ways we've wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. We who've had our debts canceled are those who can now cancel debts. And Jesus' next two sentences really make this clear. That if we forgive others their sins, our Heavenly Father will forgive ours. And if we don't forgive others their sins, neither will our Father forgive us our sins. Jesus told another story about that too in Matthew 18. It's the story of a slave that tallied up an incredible amount of debt with his master, an unimaginable amount of money that this man racked up. And one day his master calls him in and asks for the debt to be paid. Of course he can't. And so he's going to be thrown off into a debtor's prison until every last cent can be paid. But he pleads for mercy from his master, and the master does the unimaginable. He cancels the debt. He wipes it clean. He erases all of it, all this man's past, every mistake he's made, every debt he's run up, all of it is wiped away. His past no longer defines him or tells him who he will be. It's no longer held over him. He is free. And so he goes out, and what does he do? He finds another slave that owes him just a little bit of money, a couple hundred dollars, and says, pay me back. He says, I can't, I don't have the money. So he places his arms around his throat and threatens him. Word gets back to the master. The master calls him in and says, You wicked slave! I showed you bountiful grace, and you can't show an ounce to your brother? Then I will throw you into jail until every last cent of your debt is paid. If we show ourselves to be people who cannot extend forgiveness to others, Jesus invites us to see that we are people who have not really experienced grace ourselves. But when we truly understand the price of our debt, the mountain of debt that we owe to God that's been wiped clean in the blood of Jesus, when we really understand and taste the bounty of that grace, we will be people who can forgive and forgive readily and easily. 
Because no debt, no sin that you can commit against me or my family can touch the wrong that I've done to God. And if God can forgive me of that, then I can forgive you of anything. It will not be easy and I will struggle against it. But anything can be forgiven. I saw a picture of this recently in a TV show, um, Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. Is anybody watching it or watched it? Good. If you haven't, start. It's a great show. There's something more going on in it than most TV these days, and it's also hilarious. Um, Spoiler alerts, though. So if you don't want to, pause the stream, turn it off, plug your ears, whatever you have to do. Episode 9. Rebecca, who's the owner of a soccer club in England, who's brought in an American college football coach, um, which everyone thinks is a joke. She plays in public like it's um, trying to be creative, but... In secret, it's a plan to ruin the club, to run it into the ground and destroy it because it was the only thing her ex-husband loved. She got it in the divorce and wanted to tear it down. And so she's been working behind his back to undermine everything he does. She's been sabotaging it all. She's been lying to him, the club, the town, everyone. And eventually she's caught in it. And eventually she's forced to confess to him what she's been doing. And so we watch in that episode as she stumbles from her office to his, in a daze disoriented by the guilt, knowing all that she's done wrong, imagining all that will come in the blowback and retaliation and retribution. And she stumbles into his office and blurts out a confession and then braces for the retaliation, expecting him to go to the press and tell everything, to tear her down for ruining him. She expects it and deserves it. And as she braces, he stands up and says, I forgive you. And it's a moment that shows the beauty of grace in a way that is not often depicted these days in our world. I hope that you have experienced a moment like that. I pray that you've experienced it and felt it as Jesus' grace is poured into your life. When you have done wrong and know it and are caught dead to rights, when you deserve retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but are met instead with grace. We have fallen short. We have sinned, sure. We have wronged others and wronged God. But we are also forgiven. And that overflowing grace allows us to forgive others. Not to become doormats. Not those who are ready to be taken advantage of. Too weak to stand on our own feet, muttering something about forgiveness as we hide in the shadows. Forgiveness is empowering. Because forgiveness throws a wrench finally in the gears of retribution and retaliation and violence that have kept the world spinning all these many years. Forgiveness pulls us out of that cycle. It is empowering and freeing and births something into the world that is new. A new thing that was given birth in Jesus on the cross that continues to spill out into the world as the church of Jesus Christ offers that same grace now to the world. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you as we also forgive those who've wronged us. Prayer gets God in to all that we need in the present, 
all that we need for our past and also all that we need for the future. Don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. John Calvin, in many ways, outlined the heart of the Reformed tradition when he delineated between the double graces of justification and sanctification. I'll tell you what I mean. Justification is the declaration in Christ that we are in the right, that we are made right with God and righteous, that our sins have been covered over and dealt with, wiped away in Jesus. And from that moment on, we have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus. We've been adopted as God's children. All that's God is ours, and we have the hope of Christ in this life and in the life to come. But Jesus also, from that moment on, pours his Holy Spirit into our lives, entering into our hearts, forming us into the image of Christ. As we live out our faith, as we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside us working the grace of sanctification as well, making us holy, setting us apart, making us to look more and more like Jesus, bearing good fruit that will last as we abide in the vine. Because prayer involves God in our lives, not just setting right our past, but making it possible for us to be faithful in the future. Because we still live in a world under the influence of the evil one. We are still surrounded by temptation. And the worst of temptations and the worst of evils in this world are often those cloaked in good. Those we cannot see until it is too late if we even see them then. We see this in the greatest temptations in the Bible. Go to Genesis 3. As the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, Eve sees that the fruit is good to the eye, pleasing, beautiful, that it seems to be good for acquiring wisdom, a great thing. And she even shares out of her bounty with her husband, not hoarding it to herself, all good things, but it's all a deception. And the, rot, the fruit is rotten on the inside and brings all of humanity into rebellion and sin from that day on. Jesus is tempted three times by Satan in Matthew 4 as well. The first temptation is to provide food for the hungry himself. A great thing that Jesus does later. The second temptation is a miraculous revelation of his true identity that the world may know and follow him. Another great thing. The third temptation is for him to sit on his throne over all the kingdoms of the world. Another great thing that we hope for in the future. All good things twisted by the wrong means to be temptation. And Jesus is the one who sees through them and rejects each time. The evil one is good at disguising evil, at tempting us with things that look great. We cannot be trusted to see clearly. Our vision is still clouded. We do not have the clarity of Christ. So we don't pray, bring on the temptation that we can prove our faithfulness. We pray, don't lead us into temptation and rescue us from the power and dominion of the evil one. And so this petition also teaches us humility. The first time it was the humility of knowing our limits. The second, the humility of knowing our sin. And this one, the humility of realizing our susceptibility, our proclivity towards sin. 
our spiritual blindness and ignorance, our lack of self-knowledge, the depths to which pride goes in each of us, to understand that even when we are doing great things for God, the devil is prowling, looking to devour, as Peter wrote. Or as God warns Cain in Genesis 4, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain didn't. We haven't. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's a prayer similar to what Paul instructs in Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. So we'll look at this in closing. Paul wrote this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. God does not just provide for what we need in the present. God does not just provide for what we have done wrong in the past, canceling our debts. God also provides a way for the future, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground and after everything to stand. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you as we also forgive those who've wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And with that, the prayer just ends. It doesn't go on indeterminately. It's short and to the point. There's no mumbling, no awkward goodbye. It's done. We've been brought into what God's doing in the world. Our will and lives are bent toward God's kingdom. We've asked God for what we need. There's no more that's necessary. No grandstanding is needed, no flowery doxologies. Remember how Jesus began. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard by their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. We don't have to butter God up. We don't have to convince God to answer. We don't need to pester. Almighty God is our Father and will answer according to his kingdom and his power and his glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this prayer, that it is succinct, it is something so many of us have memorized that we may recite without thinking much of its meaning, but whose depths go so far. And so each time we give voice to this prayer, may we enter more deeply into your presence. May we trust the relationship in which we pray that you are our Father in heaven, that you may bring us into what you are doing in the world by hallowing your name, by bringing your kingdom and your will on earth as they are in heaven. But Lord, may you also get involved in our lives. Come and grant us all that we need in the present, bread for today, 
all that we need for our past. Forgive us for what we've done wrong as we forgive others. And Lord, make a way in our future toward you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.